As most of us probably already know, the standard American diet, aka the way 99% of the country eats every single day, is loaded with sugar, carbohydrates, and processed food. But have you ever wondered what that combination of unhealthy foods is really doing to your body, and especially to your blood chemistry? Well, today we're going to find out as we dig in with nutritionist and blood chemistry expert, Leanne Vogel. So get ready because what she has to share is absolutely fascinating. Welcome to the Ditch the Carbs podcast brought to you by Thinlicious. I'm your host, Ruth Sukup, and here we'll talk about everything from the science of weight loss and metabolic flexibility to practical tips for making your health a priority in the midst of a very busy life. It's the perfect blend of insightful education, practical application, and good old-fashioned motivation. So buckle up, friend, because it's about to get real. And welcome back to the Ditch the Carbs podcast. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Ruth Sukup, and I am the founder of Thinlicious and the Thin Adapted System, as well as the New York Times bestselling author of seven books. And in today's episode, we are taking another deep dive into the science of weight loss and low-carb living by exploring the importance of blood chemistry when it comes to your health. So if you like to get a little bit nerdy sometimes, then you are definitely going to love this topic because I don't know about you, but the more I dig into the science of health and metabolism, the more I want to know. And we're going to get to the interview in just a sec. But first, before we do, I wanted to give you one quick reminder, which is that if you are brand new to this podcast, if you're just listening for the first time and you're new to Thinlicious and the low-carb lifestyle then I would love to send you our free starter guide. It's super helpful for understanding just a little bit of the science behind our program, kind of the why and the how behind what we, why we do what we do and what we're doing. And even why, if you've reached a certain age, it might feel like your metabolism has just sort of stopped working. We'll explain it all. So you can get that for free at thinlicious.com slash guide. Once again, it's available at thinlicious.com slash guide. Got it? Okay. So with that out of the way, I'm super excited to introduce you to today's expert interview guest, Leanne Vogel. Leanne, as you may or may not know, is the founder of Healthful Pursuit and a certified holistic nutritionist and functional blood chemistry specialist who has been in the space since 2007 helping women use a ketogenic diet to balance their hormones. She specializes in addressing the chronic root cause issues such as parasites, mold, and metal toxicity using standard blood work. And she is also the international best-selling author of the Keto Diet Book, which, fun fact, was actually the very first Keto Diet Book that I ever bought way back in 2017. So I've been paying attention to what Leanne has to say for a very long time. And she is also the voice behind the longest running keto podcast, the Keto Diet Podcast. So suffice to say, she knows what she's talking about. She's been doing this for a while and she has so much insight to share. And so without further ado, here is my interview with Leanne Vogel. Leanne, welcome to the Low Carb Living Summit. 
I am so excited to have you here. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me, Ruth. Uh, I know that's like a mouthful, FBCS and CHN <laughs> and all the elemental Ps after my name. It's really fun. I love learning and I'm, I love sharing what I've learned. So I'm so excited to be here today. Awesome. Well, I'm so excited to dive in with you because I love doing all the nerdy stuff, right? Like all the the science behind what makes keto effective, like that really is, is my jam too. And I can totally geek out with the best of them. So <laughs> I am so excited to hear what you have to share today, because I'm sure it's going to be good. So before we dive into all those nerdy details, um, let's first just have kind of a quick overview. Can you give us an overview of just your general philosophy around keto and food in general? Oh man. Okay. So when I started keto, it was try to get as low carb as you possibly can get into a deep state of ketosis. Who cares? Now it's very much about using a ketogenic diet to achieve your goals. I personally stopped eating keto after seven years of achieving my goals on a ketogenic diet, learning that I didn't need to be keto forever in order to be metabolically flexible. And so now I use a ketogenic diet as a means to maintain metabolic flexibility. Um, so that's really how I've shifted over time, um, understanding that carbohydrates do have a place in our diet. And now understanding the blood chemistry part of it, the microbiome side part of it, that this all or nothing mentality toward keto might not be the most healthy for most people, though there is always that caveat of like, you need to be hardcore keto. Um, but yeah, that's my general philosophy now. I love that philosophy. And I think that for so many people, this thought like, oh my gosh, does this, if I go keto, does that really mean that I can never have carbs ever again in my entire life? And knowing that there is, there is the balance that you can strike about it, but, but exactly what you're saying, that it's not about necessarily no carbs for the rest of your life or just staying away from that, but metabolic flexibility. So can you explain like just definition for somebody who has never heard that term before, what that actually means, metabolic flexibility? Yeah. So I remember I used to on book tour, bring a skip rope to a couple of events and just talk about how when we're not metabolically flexible, we keep hitting the rope over our legs and we can't jump. And so metabolic flexibility is this ability to jump back and forth through fat burning, sugar burning, fat burning, sugar burning. And that's what we really want. We want to be able to look at the cupcake and not gain 10 pounds. We want to be able to celebrate our birthdays and go out for pizza, but also know how to rein it in and go maybe long periods of time without eating or not getting hangry when we're eating to maybe even doing a longer term fast and know that we can have this benefit where we're not jonesing for the next fix of carbohydrates, but knowing that when we do have carbohydrates, it's not the end of the world. And so that's what I mean by that metabolic flexibility. Yeah. Uh, so you've been doing this for a long time. You've been in the keto space since, gosh, when when did you first start? 2007 in this space? Uh, so in 2007 is when I studied holistic nutrition and then I was vegan at the time. It wasn't until 2014 where I found the ketogenic diet ruined my business because I was telling vegans to eat bacon. Um, so that was an adjustment. Uh, <laughs> um, and so it was 2014 that I've been talking about the ketogenic diet and educating on it. Okay. Yeah. Cause I think your book was probably one of the first ones that I ever read when I first started doing keto back in 2017 or 2018. It was, it was so helpful. It's so good. And I'm sure that having been in this, this space for so long, you've probably seen it all. 
Um, so I'm just really curious, what do you see as the biggest ways that people tend to go wrong and to sabotage their results or to sab- just to sabotage their health in general um, when they're trying to go keto or go low carb? Not listening to their body. I think is number one. And I did that. I mean, I was hardcore keto for six months and my body kept telling me with little things like pins and needles and exhaustion, dizziness. Um, I had hard times breathing and I just like kept going hard. Um, a lot of digestive issues, like people will have nonstop diarrhea and they just keep going. And I, I think that's probably the biggest thing. Uh, another misconception and it, it's like this double-edged sword thing is like we have so much information available to us we could listen to podcasts for eight hours a day and not even touch the surface of what's available to us and unfortunately there's so much information that contradicts each other and so one person will say do this and the other person will do this and it, it just gets so overwhelming that we try to do too much and we don't understand that we need to understand our personal bodies first like I know that I will never be able to run marathon I just, I'm not good at it. I'm not good at running. I don't really enjoy it. And so knowing that, obviously, I'm not going to listen to a running podcast or be delusion to think that I, I can run like it's just, it's not possible. And although that's a simple um Example, I, I think just that inundation of information can be a challenge and not knowing when to seek help uh, and not knowing when to seek the right help. I've been onboarding a couple clients this week and I'm just heartbroken over the types of work that they've done in the past with other practitioners and just like missing the mark and not listening. And so I think it's also about aligning yourself with people that listen that ask questions, that understand where you're coming from. And I think that that's massively lacking in the space. And we're just consuming so much information, but not asking, would this actually work for me and my body based on my history and what I like and don't like? Yes. Yes. It's so true because everybody is different. Everybody responds to, to things differently. And that's not like what works for one person, even though, even if it works for the majority of people, doesn't necessarily mean that you're doing something wrong. If it's not working for you. I think that's really, really great advice. And you like, what I specifically love about the work that you're doing is that you're so deeply in ingrained in like not only listening to your body and kind of in a woo-woo sense, but in, <laughs> in an actual practical test your blood and see what your blood chemistry is, tel- is telling you. So let's, let's talk about that. Let's dive in because I really am curious about how the food that we eat directly impacts our blood chemistry and, and why that's even something that we need to understand. Can you say more about that? Yeah. Completely. So first we need to understand what is blood chemistry. So many of us have gone into our doctors for our maybe yearly physical or maybe every 10 year physical because we avoid it. Um, and they run a couple of blood work and they say, your labs are normal. Go home. You're fine. Or maybe if it's really bad, they might have ran your HbA1c and say, you know, your glucose is getting up there. You know, whatever they're recommending, it depends on the doctor. Cut your red meat and work out more um, is usually some of the recommendations. And so that's kind of what we know about our blood work, but there's so much more to blood chemistry. And that's where that merging, like you said, Ruth, of wanting to know what's right for your body and then being like, 
but what's right for my body. And so blood chemistry, okay, when you get your regular CMP 14 and your CBC with differential, maybe your glucose, maybe insulin, uh, your white, white blood cells um, is in the CBC with differential, we can tell so much about what your cells need. And there, though I don't work with a ton of people who are eating a standard American diet, I attract the individuals who have been like eating hardcore keto for a really long time and they're still not feeling good and their blood work is totally crazy. Um, and so you can tell a lot about what diet is good for you, what nutrients are needed, how your liver is doing, how your kidneys doing. But I think the most important thing to understanding functional blood chemistry is that in functional blood chemistry, we're not waiting until the liver gets totally janked before we do something about it. Like we want to catch things before they're diagnosable. And so that's really, um, that's, that was such a hard thing to understand is that your regular allopathic doctor is a diagnosing disease-based doctor. If you go into the doctor and you say, there's something wrong with me. And they say, no, there isn't, then congratulations, you're probably not dying of a disease. That's awesome. <laughs> but that doesn't mean that you're functioning well. Right. And so functional blood chemistry starts to look at how are you functioning and how do we coach up that function to bring more vitality? And so that's really what the blood chemistry piece is about. And then how it relates to diet. I mean, I talked about uh, protein being an issue and we can kind of go through some markers that I see time and time and time again, if people aren't eating right, I'm going to see it in their blood work with things like triglycerides. I, I don't use HbA1c. I think it's a terrible marker. It was a great marker when it was first invented as the gold standard, but there are far better ways to assess your glucose variability. Um, and those are kind of okay. like, can I stop that you I right there? Because I don't know what that means. HB glucose variability? Your HbA1c. Okay, so H HbA1c is your hemoglobin A1c. It's a marker that's used to determine your glucose variability. But the problem with HbA1c, okay, so um, imagine your glucose kind of, your glucose is never steady, okay? So your glucose goes up and then down and then up and then down. HbA1c looks for the average of your ups and downs. So if you average out fine, it's never going to catch an actual issue. So there are other ways to assess for glucose variability outside of the HbA1c. It's just not, it's not the be all end all gold standard. And oftentimes people that have maybe been told by a doctor to go on keto or um, have kind of been in the keto space for a while, you see a lot of like, check your HbA1c and what's your HbA1c doing? And though it can be a good marker, for example, in the case of um, elevated HbA1c, because hemoglobin is part of it, hemoglobin is involved in nutrient status. So if you have iron anemia, your HbA1c is going to skyrocket. So you go into your doctor and they say, you got to, you got to watch your sugars. And you're like, I eat keto. Why do I have a elevated HbA1c? Probably because you have an iron issue. And so HbA1c is not a good marker. Um, and unfortunately, it's usually the one that will be increased or sometimes even normal, depending on the person when they really need to address the diet. So it's not my number one marker that I like to use. Well, that begs the question, then what is the number one marker? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I'm just going to go through a little bit of blood work here and yeah. kind of explain um, what's what. So 
glucose is a great marker to assess for actual glucose. Okay, so this is just going to be a snapshot in time at the time of doing your test. This is why it's absolutely essential to fast during your test. Okay, um, at least 14 hours, you want no food, no coffee, just water, and you're going to go in for your test and you're going to get your fasting glucose. Okay, so that's a good marker, though it's only going to be one. If you know of your glucose prick testing that you're doing, perhaps on your ketogenic diet um, or your CGM monitor that you're wearing on the back of your arm, that's glucose monitoring. Okay, with the back of your arm, you're testing uh, serum uh, glucose. So it's not the same as blood glucose. There's a little bit of a difference. So it's going to be off by 10 points, but this is that same marker. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, then we have insulin, another important marker to test for overall metabolic health as it relates to how you're processing carbohydrates. Now that insulin, unfortunately, can be elevated due to deficiencies. Okay, so your your insulin might be elevated, and you might be on a ketogenic diet, you might be doing everything right. And you're like, what's going on? It could be because of a mineral deficiency. Um, C-peptide is one that I love using uh, instead of HbA1c. And that is far more stable even than insulin and can give you some really good information about um, your overall variability um, and and what your needs are overall as opposed to the insulin. Awesome. So that's, and the, these are all tests that you would have to ask your doctor to prescribe. And that, is that correct? So if you are outside of the United States of America, then yes. Um, but in the U.S., you can go to LabCorp or go to Anytime Lab Test Now or work with Vibrant America, uh, depending on um, your state, and actually get lab work yourself. You don't need a doctor requisition in the U.S. to get your own blood work, except in the case of New Jersey, Rhode Island, and New York. Unfortunately, because of your government, they make it so that you have to work with a doctor. But the really cool thing about the U.S. is that you don't need to work with a practitioner to get your own blood work. However, once you get the blood work back, you're not really going to know <laughs> what it's saying. And so right. um, that becomes a difficult piece. And that's really what motivated me to come up with my blood work course, because I wanted to give people an option to like, okay, now that I have all this blood work, what do I do with it? Because yeah. you cannot go off the standard allopathic ranges because they're just too wide. By the time you're out of that range, there's likely an issue. We want to tighten up the ranges to really understand what's going on functionally. Interesting. And so, I mean, I think that's that's something I definitely heard from a lot of my students, and I'm sure you hear this from your clients too, uh, is how do you find doctors who understand all of this? Because like you said, that's not that's not most medical practitioners in, in the United States today. They're they're disease focused, they're not doing this sort of functional medicine. So what what is the solution for that? Yeah. So if you feel the need that you like, you you feel very comfortable with doctors, they need to be a doctor, um, then a doctor that's been trained by IFM, Institute of Functional Medicine, uh, is a good starting point. They might not be functionally blood work trained. You really have to ask them, like, do you work with functional blood chemistry? Do you understand functional blood chemistry? Um, if I come to you with elevated HbA1c, what is going to be your top priority? Um, and just kind of quiz them on that. The beautiful thing about the internet is you can really 
see who's on there and see what their approaches are and see if that aligns with you before you just walk into an office. Whereas like, you know, back in the nineties, we just like went to a place and didn't really know who we were getting in, like into business with. And we sat down and turns out it was all woo woo and wasn't going to help. And so the beautiful thing about the internet now is you can research and go on their Instagram page and just see what they're doing. But there are some really amazing practitioners and many of my colleagues we're not doctors. And I am like amazed at how brilliant these other practitioners are. They're just so on top of it. They might not have the PhD. They might not have the MD behind their name, but um, they bring so much value to the table. So I think things are changing where people are starting to see, like, I go to my doctor for the serious diagnostic issues and we need doctors. Like mm-hmm. I have a doctor. I love my doctor. I know when to go to my doctor. Um, and then we need those functionally trained people. And some of them are doctors and some of them aren't doctors. But I think a good first step is to just call and ask. Um, and and if they're not even open to answering the questions, then it's probably not the best place to go, would be my opinion. <laughs> That's a, a great observation. So what are some other, you know, things that you need to be looking out for with blood work? I know something that I see come up a lot is concerns that low carb or ketogenic diets are bad for your cholesterol. Have you, is this something that you've run into and how do you handle that? Yeah, totally. I mean, it is bad for your cholesterol for some people. Um, there are genetic sequences like APOE three and four, for example, uh, is it APOE three? I can't remember. I'm not like a genetic person. I just, I try to learn and it just goes right over my head. Um, but I know that there are certain genetics that don't allow us to process saturated fats. And so if you're on a strict ketogenic diet and you're eating all the cheese and all of the tallow and all of the fatty meats and you go in and you test your cholesterol and your LDL goes from like, I don't know, 80 to 250 in the course of a couple of months, chances are you cannot handle saturated fat. And so then you have to do more of a Mediterranean type of ketogenic diet. It doesn't mean that you can't eat keto, though I have seen that definitely depending on a person's oxidation and and where their body's at, where their adrenal's at, where their thyroid is at. Maybe it's not the best time to eat a ketogenic diet, but I generally see LDL being the thing that's going to jump up on a ketogenic diet if we're, if we're just eating too many saturated fats. But generally speaking, as we eat a ketogenic diet, our triglycerides, I mean, I've seen, I've seen crazy amounts of triglycerides in, in clients that come to me on a standard American diet and their doctors give them three months to change. And we're like, okay, our goal is to get those triglycerides at least under 200. I mean, our goal goal is to get it under 100. Um, but triglycerides are one that generally responds super, super well um, to a ketogenic diet. Now, I will say, if your liver is sideways, okay, it's not processing well. If you've had a gallbladder removed, um, that's generally a sign that your liver is not processing well. Sometimes on a ketogenic diet, your triglycerides will actually go up. And that's a sign that you need to support the liver. The, the liver is required for ketosis. Okay. The liver is massively required. And if you have a liver that's a little sideways going on a, in a deep state of ketosis can actually make those triglycerides go up. And I've seen that like, probably more than the LDL saturated fat situation. Interesting. So it sounds like getting tested fairly regularly is a good idea. How often would you recommend that people get, get their blood work done? 
Yeah. So if you're actively working on something and you have goals and you're like, okay, I want to adjust my diet and work on these root causes and get to the bottom of what's going on. I generally recommend blood work every three months or so. Um, if you are sort of like, yeah, like it's okay. Like I'll just check up maybe six months, but my, I couldn't imagine a world. Well, I mean, I get my blood work done a lot because I like just seeing how things are going. Yeah. I'm usually going monthly. I have a lab account. I just like, prepare a requisition for myself and go in and see what's (laughs) happening after I've done something crazy, but um, once a year. Um, And that goes especially for people that are on thyroid medication. I cannot tell you how many clients I onboard and they've been put on thyroid medication five years ago. They checked up once with their, with their doctor three months after going on thyroid medication, and then they hadn't gotten tested in years. No, once a year, if you're on thyroid medication, you need a full thyroid workup. And that goes for bioidentical hormone replacement therapy. Also, if you've had a hysterectomy and now you're on all sorts of hormones, or maybe if you haven't had a hysterectomy and you're still on a bunch of hormones, you need to be checking those hormones every six to 12 months, like without a doubt to just make sure everything's okay. Um, and that's not to scare you. It's just like, we need, we need that responsibility of checking because the body shifts and changes. And so those, the blood work will tell us what's going on. And so Again, I think if we're actively actively involved, like most of my clients get blood work done every three to six months, depending on what we're working on. Um, and if we've shifted something, like if they come to me with a gallbladder removal and we put them on some supplements and diet changes to check on things, I'll probably check on the blood work in 30 days to see, okay, how did the liver respond? What are we doing with bile? How are we breaking down our fats? Um, whereas you could go a little bit longer once you kind of get into the groove of things. Amazing. So what really is the first step that somebody needs to take to start like working towards, I mean, besides, I guess, going in and getting a blood test, but (laughs) probably would be the the first thing. Um, But to start, to start making these changes, right? Because the goal is to become metabolically flexible. So what is it really the blood test that's going to guide you in, in what you should and shouldn't be eating? Or is it better to just like start you know, start with a certain diet and then have the blood blood work confirm that, what would you recommend? Yeah. So it really depends on the type of person. I love to see blood work before anyone does anything. Mm-hmm. So if you have an extra $60 to just go in and get a basic workup, so you like have a starting point and then starting on your ketogenic diet or your low carb diet and just see how far you get just on your own, not really understanding your blood work. But once you get to that point, and generally we all do, if you've been blessed to just have a body that responds perfectly to all things and then lucky you, but generally we get to that point where we need answers, then I would go in for another blood work and then assess. Also having your starting points, so you can see, wow, actually like what I've done is really encouraging. My triglycerides have gone down. My LDL has gone down. My glucose has gone down. But there are some things that I need to work on. And I think understanding that is super important. And also understanding how you prepare for your blood work is really important. So we talked about fasting earlier, especially with the insulin, uh, the glucose, cholesterol is really important to be fasted. Um, and I've put together a little guide for you guys so that you can go through exactly how to prepare for the blood work and what markers to ask for if you're asking a doctor or what markers to go into any time lab test now or wherever you go to get your blood work um, to get that understanding of, of, of what you need um, in, in those markers. 
Awesome. And so where can they go to find this, this resource? Yeah. So if you go to healthfulpursuit.com slash labs, healthfulpursuit.com slash labs, healthfulpursuit.com slash labs. Yeah. It's H-E-A-L-P-H-F-U-L. P-U-R-S-U-I-T dot com. The longest name. I totally regret it, but we're just going <laughs> to roll with it because it's been 14 years and it's not changing. <laughs> That's so funny. I uh, I totally understand that regret. <laughs> had the yeah. same problem in the past. Um, oh, well, man. Leanne, I am just so blown away by everything you shared. This was like a power pack to half hour of so much good information and where, where can we find out more or where can people get in touch with you if they want to get your insight onto their lab work? Yeah. So probably the best place um, to check me out is on Instagram at Leanne Vogel. Uh, that's V-O-G-E-L. Um, and yeah, I post reels when I have time. Um, I'm in, I'm in clinic a lot working with clients. So I haven't been doing that a lot, but um, that's usually the best place to get in touch with me and just send me a DM. And um, I post a lot of good content on there. At least I think it's good. But um, yeah, if you just want to learn more about blood chemistry and symptoms and how it all relates. Awesome. Well, I'm sure lots of people will be doing that. I know I definitely am going to go check it out as well. So thank you so much for being here today. So excited to have you. And just again, thank you. All right, you guys, that about does it for today's interview. And that means that's all I've got for you today. We will be back on Monday to talk about a topic that I know is such a big deal for so many of us. And that is the issue of self-sabotage. Specifically, we're going to be talking about all the ways that we tend to self-sabotage, often without even realizing it, and also some super practical ways that you can avoid doing that to yourself. (laughs) We want to avoid the self-sabotage. So we're going to talk about that because you know I am all about the practical. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe or follow the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you like to listen. And not only that, if you know anyone else who would find this content useful, find the stuff that we talked about today useful, please, please, please be sure to share it. Send them a text, share it on social, share it by email, shout it from the rooftops. I don't care how you share it, but I do believe that we can transform the world by transforming people's health. And I would love for you to help me in that mission. And then finally, because this podcast is so brand new, your reviews on iTunes are actually a really big deal. So if you feel so inclined to leave a review, that would be absolutely amazing. Then be sure to take a screenshot and send it to us at hello at thinlicious.com. We are constantly choosing listeners at random each week to win lots of fabulous prizes. You got a chance to win if you leave a review and it can be on Apple Podcasts, it can be on Spotify, wherever you like to listen, leave a review, then send us a screenshot, send it to us at hello at thinlicious.com for a chance to win lots of great things. And then finally, if you have any questions or you just wanna connect or you have any topics that you wanna see me discuss on this podcast, please, please, please feel free to shoot me an email again at hello at thinlicious.com. But that's all for now. I will see you very soon.